From the Wall Street Journal, this is Instant Message. I'm David Pierce. This week on the show, have you ever gone to Google Maps and put an address for a plumber or a coffee shop or a lawyer's office or a hospital or something, but then you arrive and there's nothing there or you call a phone number and it's something totally different than you thought? Uh, turns out that's a real problem for lots of people. And we're going to look at how millions of fake listings took over Google Maps and why that's happening and what you can do to make it better. Later on, I'll talk with Moleskine's head of digital, Peter Jensen, about how analog and digital text can mix in the future and whether paper notebooks have a role 100 years from now. But first, the big story this year in the tech industry is going to be how and whether the government decides to regulate big tech companies. And one big piece of that is antitrust inquiries, where the government tries to decide if companies like Facebook or Google are monopolies that need to be broken up in some way or shape or form. These inquiries focus on one specific phrase, consumer harm. That's a big part of what antitrust regulation has always been about. So today we're going to talk about what harm looks like. Uh, here with me to go through all of this, Joanna Stern and Christopher Mims. Luckily, nobody's on vacation this week. Hi, guys. Hello. Hello. Christopher, how was your vacation? Really good. Sweden is the home of Ikea and pickled fish, and I recommend both. Do those Are those things connected? Do you think one like begat the other? In the grand scheme of things, yeah. <laughs> what about Swedish fish? Did you get have those there, and are they from there? I did not see any Swedish fish the entire time I was there. So I suspect those were invented by like an oncologist in Chicago in the 30s. And we've all been uh, having the wool pulled over our eyes ever since. That just makes me sad. Hmm. Oh, well. But okay, Sorry. so let's talk about this this antitrust stuff here. Because I think this is the thing we're going to talk about a lot over the next months on this show. But what I want to do here is kind of set up the stakes and really what's going on and, and mostly why this matters to actual people. Because I think it's, it's easy to think of this stuff as politics and business and not relevant to sort of us as consumers and users. But I really think that it is and, and we should explain why. So Christopher, let's start with you because you've been writing about this more than the three of us or more than the rest of us. But why, why is antitrust happening right now? And like, what, what does it mean that they're trying to figure out what consumer harm looks like in the world of Facebook and Google. So there are two reasons antitrust is happening right now. One is motivating uh, the conservative side of the aisle. One is motivating the Democrats. And this is why we have bipartisan support. And both of them are as typical of politicians, kind of cynical. Um, on the Republican side, the announcement of, about you know Congress setting up this uh, committee to make inquiries into these companies. Um, one of the, the one of the discussion points was, to, you know, we're worried that uh, you know Google and Facebook have demonstrated anti-conservative bias. You know, it's not it, they definitely have biases. It's not clear what they are. It seems to depend on the day. Um, so that's coming from one side of the aisle. From the other side. Um, I think that the Obama era love of tech and tech as a bastion of progress and progressive values has uh, curdled, and now everybody's just worried about their monopoly power. And this is, uh, and you know, obviously we have Elizabeth Warren talking about this a lot. Uh, I mean, she is historically has worked her whole life uh to curtail the power of big companies and i think she probably sees in big tech something like she saw in um finance and in the credit card companies whom she battled 
um, you know, first as a professor and then as like an advisor to the government. Uh, and there are many others who have those concerns. So um, there are a bunch of legal scholars who are creating this body of, um, I don't know what to call it. It's like alternative thinking on what is the nature of antitrust. And they're really going back to first principles, which is not, um, you know, does this fit the current, uh, a frankly, pretty stringent definition of a monopoly? But um, are there harms to consumers, to competition and otherwise uh, deriving from just the sheer size of these companies, whether or not they are strictly monopolies? The way I understand monopolies from the, the politics degree I got a very long time ago is basically that they are, they are, someone is determined to be a monopoly if they are making things that end up being too expensive for customers, more expensive than they need to be anyway. Uh, they discourage competition, which means people don't get the best product, or they official or they reduce the availability of those things. So you either get less, worse, or too expensive. Uh, and now we have all these free services that are just on the internet. So the whole idea of, of what it costs and how much of it there is and whether or not there's other versions of it seems to just not work. Like it, using Google is not the same thing as buying oil, right? Like are, is there... They just seem totally different to me. Yeah, I mean, that's true. But I think that the the sort of radical idea uh, that has come out of, you know, conferences of academics thinking about this is that actually free may be too high a price, which sounds absolutely bizarre. Um, but one of the suggestions is literally that these companies should be in some way paying you for your data. They also don't have to pay you directly for your data because frankly, as an individual, your data is not worth that much. It's only worth a lot if you aggregate millions of people's data. It may just be that the price that we are collectively paying is too high because there's a bunch of unpoliced externalities. Like imagine if there was a company that was like, you can have free food, but the consequence is that we're going to um, make your water supply undrinkable with pollutants. That seems like a good deal, right? And you'd be like, no, thanks, free food company. That's kind of where Facebook and Google and these others are. It's like, here, you can have free stuff, but we are going to take so many liberties with your privacy and with your data that you are going to pay in other ways. So the argument is, these companies are too big, too powerful. They're oligopolies at the very least. And if they had more competition, maybe they wouldn't be so cavalier with our data. Or maybe they'd pay us for it. Or maybe they'd give us more or better services in exchange for that data. Or if you think about, to, to David's point, that, we are, that we're not maybe paying so much with money anymore, but we're paying incre incrementally more every year with more data. And with our attention. I think that the psychological aspect of this can't be underestimated. I honestly think it, like when historians look back, they'll probably think that the thing that we were stupidest about was the degree to which we, over, we underestimated the cost to the health of our democracy um, to the health of our attention spans, our psychology. I mean, look, there's tons of evidence that, you know, getting off of social media ultimately makes you happier. So if one externality is that it's just giving us all FOMO and making us depressed and politically dividing us and ruining our ability to determine what is true or not, those are all existential threats to our civilization. That seems like a price that's probably too high to pay. How do they measure any of that? Yeah, all this feels so hand-wavy to me. Like, th these are all, I think, very real things, but not in the same way that the price of oil is easily quantified. Like, is it, you've written about this a bunch, are, are there actual ways to put sort of numbers and actual data against some of this stuff? It all feels like counterfactuals to me, where it's like, it would be so much better if it weren't like this. And it's like, well, how do you, how do you know? I think you're right. I think a lot of the, frankly, a lot of the criticism is pretty hand wavy. And I think that, you know, it's that old, like, you know, you, 
you, you, what is it? You pay attention to what you measure. Maybe we do need new measures of this sort of thing in order to get us to actually pay attention. Hmm. So is that, I mean, I guess the, is that the thing that's going to get us over the hump right now? Because I feel like the thing that's amazing to me is how many people who are doing things like running for president are doing it blatantly saying they are going to attempt to break up these big tech companies. And uh, it's gone from sort of a thing that I think would have been very unpopular not that long ago to a thing that would have been maybe only sort of loosely discussed a couple of years ago to now being like, it is the cool new thing to talk about how you're going to break up these tech companies. And uh, like, is this is this real? Is this going to happen? Or is this just sort of political posturing on all sides because they're, everybody's mad at Facebook and it's easy to score political points by being mad at Facebook? I, I don't know. It depends on if Elizabeth Warren gets elected, right? I mean, I feel like she's the one who's the most vocal. Yeah, she doesn't seem to be kidding. She is not kidding, for sure. Yeah. So, Joanna, what what are there other parts of this that you see as like the consumer harm? I feel like this is the big question is how is it hurting customers that these companies are allowed to be so big. Like Christopher, in the piece you wrote not that long ago, you mentioned uh, Facebook buying WhatsApp and Instagram. And the question is sort of, what if they weren't allowed to do that? Uh, like, Joanna, what, what does that world look like? Do you have any idea? Do we have any idea? What the world looks like if Facebook didn't buy Instagram? Yeah, like, would it be better if Facebook and Instagram were different competitive things instead of part of one company? I'm trying to think about what the world looks like, like if question. Facebook didn't buy Instagram. I really feel like the biggest thing is we would just have less ads or the ad tracking wouldn't have been as good, right? Because we know that Instagram has used so much of Facebook's technology there. Do you think also it would have affected Snapchat in a way? Oh, yeah. Snapchat would definitely still be around. I mean, they are around, but like they'd be around <laughs> in a big way. Yeah, but yeah. only just. Yeah. yeah. Like maybe, so, I mean, but maybe adults would have actually had to use Snapchat. Well, I, I, okay. Then I'm okay with it then. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think we got a little bit of a sense of where uh, during, during the hearings from last year, what, what uh, elected officials were mostly interested in was privacy harm and big company harm, right? Damaging to smaller companies and the, the inability of startups or other companies to sort of thrive when these giant companies are gobbling up everything. I think the the privacy harm is going to be, I mean, that's where I think like when I asked before, like how, like how do they prove uh, that some of these things are bad? I mean, certainly digital privacy, we have some precedent for and we have some precedent around what kind of rules we should have around that. Um, but I think that's also very separate from the privacy regulation we know we need in this country versus could a big tech like did a big tech company cause this and should they not exist because of this or should they not exist in such a big form because of this interesting yeah i mean the opposite side is small companies get hacked all the time and your data actually gets exposed in different maybe even more problematic ways when it's from a company who doesn't have nearly the same incentives to keep it straight so i feel like the I can make a fairly compelling case on both sides. Like you could almost argue that you should only trust Google with your data because Google has a long history of not having giant hacks that expose all of it, unlike basically every other company on the internet. Right. And maybe we want to live in a world in which the biggest, most well-resourced companies are protecting our data. But it's also possible that just the act of these companies being threatened with any kind of antitrust or additional regulation is itself beneficial because it alters their future decision making and puts them on alert that we're not going to, you know, put up with them abusing our data. I mean, 
if nothing, the thing is that we're at, we're past the point where nothing can come of this, right? Because it has profoundly changed the internal culture of these companies, I think in some ways, at least if Microsoft is any example. I mean, everything that I heard from Microsoft after all of that antitrust action was, it really left them shaken for years and it probably weakened them, but maybe it also paved the way for their rebirth under Nadella. Which was probably the intended goal, right? That it, it kind of in as much as the fine is scary, it's the, the sort of idea behind the whole thing that is supposed to be scary. And keep in mind, these are still founder-led companies. So this is personal, you know? I mean, this is no doubt keeping Mark Zuckerberg up at night and changing how he directs a company. Although I don't know what's up with, um, I'm going to control the world's money supply. Like that doesn't seem like a very chastened move. Classic thing to do when you're worried about antitrust stuff is launch a new <laughs> currency. Speaking of advertising and generally being awful, uh, let's let's move on to our, our next topic, which is uh, Google Maps. So Google Maps is probably not the first thing you think of when you think of Google, but it's one of the company's most popular products and an increasingly important business for Google. So why are there millions of fake listings on Maps for businesses that don't even exist or are hundreds of miles away? Uh, Katie Binley, a reporter on our team, has been researching and reporting this story for a while. It's another one of those things where it's really fun to sit next to her because I get to hear all of her hilarious phone calls, and these have been particularly good. Um, I want her to explain what she found and why this is such an important story. Hi, Katie. Hi. So how did you get turned on to this Google Maps fake listing story? Uh, so actually, back when I did that uh, story about like shopping on Amazon and some of the issues tied to that. Which um, we also talked about on this yeah, podcast. Yeah, I was doing some like looking into the issues of fake reviews and reached out to um, someone like who seemed to have experience in uh that kind of thing. And then that person referred me to a different person. And then I got on the phone with him to ask him about Amazon fake reviews. And he was like, actually, you should look at this other thing that's going on. And um, that was this, <laughs> which was the proliferation of fake Google Maps listings. All right. Fair enough. So give us the, the like top line version of why, because it's sort of obvious why this would be annoying mm -hmm. if you like want to go to a place and it is not what or where you thought. But I feel like the the reporting you did made it clear that it's actually sort of more insidious than that. So like what's actually going on here that is the problem? So I would say if you had to like distill it down, um, it's that phone calls equal money for a lot of companies and they want to show up as high as possible in local search results. So if I am looking for a lawyer or a plumber or whatever, um, and I'm doing a search on my phone, I'm going to get like, they call it the local pack, like the, the, the results that show up just below the map. Those top three spots are extremely valuable um, because those are going to be phone calls that lead to business, that lead to money for the companies that land those spots. Right. Um, I search pizza. I'm going to pick the first thing that says pizza. They get my money for pizza. I mean, that's not how I order pizza <laughs> personally, but for a lot of people, yes, I'm going to be doing Fair a lot enough. more diligence um, Katie for just my calls pizza. Papa John's. <laughs> oh, easy. Lou Malnati's if I'm in Chicago and New York, it's a much more nuanced process. Fair enough. Anyway, so not paid for. The, not uh, paid for. One eight hundred Lou to go. You can get it delivered in dry ice, people. Deep dish. Anyway, 
Okay, so back to back to. Sorry, I just want to get they... one Papa John's joke in, and like the whole podcast is derailed. Now I want to know about delivering pizza and dry ice, but we'll we'll come back to okay, this. Okay, we'll we come have, back. We have to time it. for this. Um, so basically, if you're a plumber or an electrician, you might service a huge area, um, and so you're gonna want to make it appear as though you are you have physical locations in more places than you do, so that when a person in say you know lower Manhattan searches for a plumber that you have a pin on the map that that gives you a shot at showing up in those local results. Because Google's going to default to showing you things that are very close to you. Right. right. Exactly. Okay. So it's it's really just like the, the motive is business and money and phone calls. And this is particularly prevalent in like the legal industry where leads are, you know, very high value things. So um, you'll get these like lead generation companies, which are basically, you know, kind of sort of marketing. I think they're marketing firms, you could basically say, where um, they, you know, there might be okay, let's say I Google personal injury attorney or whatever, and three listings pop up nearby to me, I call them, I'm actually possibly getting rooted to a call center where they are then going to kind of screen the call to see, oh, was your accident in the last two years or whatever? And then they're going to patch me through to a law firm that's likely not going to match up with the name of what I actually called. That what, what I called is going to be like a keyword stuffed like auto accident attorney <laughs> Number you know, one people. best lawyer. Best yeah. lawyer. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Exactly. And then all of a sudden I'm connected to like Joan Smith, David Poppins and, you know, whatever. <laughs> it's a very trustworthy sounding law exactly. firm. I like exactly. it. Exactly. But so, okay, so that's, even that seems like the sort of thing where like, I, I don't know, part of me, I, I'm kind of like, if I'm calling a plumber, right, mm-hmm. I'm in a position where I don't know what I want. Mm-hmm. I don't care. I don't have, you know, brand loyalty to a plumber. So if I'm getting a plumber at the end of it. Even if it's not one who has a store where I thought sure, it was. Sure. Isn't that okay? Well, so this is the thing. Sometimes it is totally okay. And like, you know, something, this was like the scary thing I encountered while I was reporting this is that there are fake urgent care center listings. Um, so I spoke with a woman who woke up in the middle of the night with like abdominal pain and her husband was Googling like, all right, urgent care near me or whatever he typed in because they didn't want to deal with a really long wait at the emergency room. So it's the middle of the night and they find a listing 10 miles away and they drive there and it's like a strip mall and there is no urgent care center there. And in that case, what's happening, um, they actually that, that listing was especially weird because there was no phone number associated with it. But typically, if it's a fake urgent care center, what it'll be is like a teledoc service. And so you'll call oh, the number wow. and they'll be like, hey, yeah, here, we can prescribe you some stuff. And they'll they'll write you a prescription in some cases. It almost just seems like it's the classic platform problem, right? Um, people advertising on said platform use g- games and tricks to game the system and then your company sort of knows about it doesn't know about how extreme it is and then sort of just lets everything run rampant i mean we've seen we've talked similar to what your your amazon story similar to the piece i wrote about the the reviews we just sort of like this is these are tricks that people are manipulating the system with to 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 make it work like i think you're absolutely right Joanna. it's like anytime there's an algorithm governing who's at the top human beings are going to figure out how to game it yeah and i guess this is just I don't know, this feels worse to me, but I guess it's because it's such a real world thing where like the end goal is not to look at a picture or something. It's to go to a place or find someone to come do something for you. It just feels more yeah. uh, feels and, more and present think, to me. And I think one of the best things about this story is just the fact that it's about Google Maps, right? It's about this platform 
And Katie, I mean, I don't, you talked a little bit about how you got to it, but like it's this platform where you don't expect it, right? You're like, maps, okay, yeah, like this is from Google and I trust everything I kind of see in here versus like we're more skeptical of the other platforms right now. We're ske- more skeptical of probably search results because we've heard about that. We're more skeptical of Facebook because Facebook. We're more skeptical of Amazon because we've heard some of these stories now. Google Maps, I was like, huh. Wasn't looking at that one. Right. Yeah, I think like the incentive is just not obvious to consumers right away. Like like a lot of people when I, you know, when I was talking about this story are just like, well, wait, but but why do people do this? It's right. just it's right. not it's not so evident, like what the motives are. And then when you once you realize what the motives are, you're like, oh, yeah. you know, the story is like when maps first like kind of came out and people were trusting maps and like they were like driving over the cliff. Yes. Do you remember all or those like stories? In, into like, rivers. Yeah, yeah, people were like, you're you're like, I trust Google Maps for everything. And it's just like, remember all of those stories where they trusted them too much. And as I made a left much. turn into yeah. the lake. <laughs> right. And there's so many tricks yeah, in Google Maps. Do you, do you guys know that like it's a really great way to search for um, just like restaurants, especially if you have like particular dietary needs or you just want to like find a we good place to find awful? <laughs> I have searched for restaurants, yes. <laughs> there's tricks. There's some tricks. Okay. Well, there's also that. That's actually a good point. I was expecting to hear like an undercover like Nintendo trick, you know, (laughs) like you open up a new land and you go underneath and you can see the underworld of Google Maps. So you're like, you can search for restaurants. (laughs) You can search for restaurants. I loved it, by the way, that the moron voice that you used earlier to describe people driving into a cliff is the voice you used just now. (laughs) For you. It's her Christopher Minza breath. That's what a moron sounds like to Joanna. Okay, so (laughs) help us help Christopher to find restaurants that are good. All right. Well, so one thing to bear in mind is like I didn't even I didn't even put this in the story, but like first of all, there are a lot of businesses don't have the incentive to like make it so that they're hiding or faking where they're located. So like with a restaurant or a bar, it's not really to their benefit to like have the wrong address and have <laughs> you show up for a beer right. at a place that's like an empty parking lot. So even just thinking about like, okay, wait, is the thing I'm searching for like one of those types of companies or industries where they would have a motive for making it seem like they're there when they're not? Interesting. And that's and, one where like if the if the location itself is actually important. Yeah. You're probably safer. Right. Like, like, but if then the urgent care thing yeah, the gets urgent weird. Care again. One. I know. I know. That, that's sort of the outlier. But, but for the most part, you're thinking about like, um, places where you would initially call. Maybe they'd come to your house. So, like, con, you know, con, HVAC repair and plumbers and electricians and, um, locksmiths and garage door repair. Those are the industries. They call them like duress verticals, apparently, mm. where, you know, you're, you're in a pinch, you're moving quickly, you're just going to like tap and call one of the top right. three. Those are the ones where, where you're more likely window repair. You're more likely to like have where um, all you need is somebody, a fake location. Yeah. Right, right. Uh, urgent care is again the one where it's just like, like, wait, seriously, you're pretending that you are there when you're not. Yeah, but that's scary. In some cases, those are the ones, yeah, that there's just certain industries that are more susceptible to the fraud. Easy first step is just like confirming the actual business name. So like opening a new tab and, and Googling the business name itself to see if anything comes up. Or obviously, you could try like a different search engine. I don't know if anyone ever thinks to do that, but that's another option. <laughs> are there others? Um, you could bing it. <laughs> you could bing it. You could duck, duck, go it just for duck fun and see what happens. It. Right, right. Yandex. Um, but just, <laughs> what is that? One? It's a Russian one, Yandex. <laughs> there we go. Don't trust Google Maps. Use Yandex. There's a, I'm there there's right a now, actually. Right there. 
I'm at Yandex right now. <laughs> right, this is Katie, great. I don't going. understand a word. While Joanna searches Russian listings, keep so, going. So those of you who are not on Yandex right now can um, <laughs> do the search of the name itself. Like oh, Even like the Better Business Bureau is a good place to just see if anything like jumps out as suspicious. I remember when I was like trying to figure out um, – how many fake plumbers there were in New York City or in Lower Manhattan, rather? Uh, one of them, when I looked on the BBB, it said, you know, they were they got flagged for like lying on their website and saying that they mm. were accredited by the BBB when they weren't. And sometimes there will be, um, you know, just reviews that jump out. So that's like a pretty pretty easy step. Also, like one thing to know is that just because you click on a website within one of these business listings, like within the map listing, they can actually make those within. Google's like platform that helps you create the listing in the first place and those can totally be faked. Oh wow. So like a website is not actually a guarantee that that's like who's who, actually, you know that can you just explain a little bit about how Google's planning to to vet these and vet and make sure that less of this appears now? I mean, what's interesting about this is that like these issues have been going on for a long time. And um, like the guy who creates the fake listings who I, you know, went to go meet with in Pennsylvania, he actually said like, this leaves a huge footprint. Like there is no way they don't know what we're doing. Um, is it know, just like strengthening much... algor- algorithms here? I mean, they, they presumably have some humans that are working to moderate this type of stuff. I mean, they they did put out this like lengthy blog right. post about, you know, how much stuff they how many fake listings they've, you know, they've managed to flag and how many get, you know, taken down or rejected before they even show up on the platform. Um, but I mean, just based on everyone we talked to, they just kind of felt like like the company just wasn't doing enough. And there, there were an amazing number of times in, in the stories that you wrote about you would send something to Google and be like, hey, this looks like a fake listing. Can you comment? And the listings would disappear. Like over and over and over, this seemed to happen. They were definitely disappearing very yeah. quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, Pure coincidence, I'm sure. Always. Yeah. Reporting is full of coincidences, <laughs> which is That's awesome. True. Coming up in just a second, my interview with Moleskin's Peter Jensen about the future of paper notebooks, which is more interesting than you might think, and how digital and analog tools can actually mix in the future. But first, it's time for our weekly segment, Today I Learned, in which one of us brings something we learned this week, maybe related to a story we wrote, maybe not. Uh, Joanna, I think you have something for us this week. What do you got? This week I learned how to spell license. L-I-C-E-N-S-E. Is that right? Unless you're in the UK and then they spell it differently. David, don't yeah. want it. What are you going to do now? Today you learned so nothing. I learned, <laughs> this week I learned nothing. <laughs> so I learned this because I wrote, I became obsessed with trying to figure out how the remaining cards, physical cards in my wallet would go away. The reason I went after this is because I, in New York City, there is something magical happening where the Metro card is going away and you can just use Apple Pay or Google Pay and it is magic. So if you live in New York, go try it. So... I looked at the, the, the transit cards, and then I also looked at licenses. And it turns out a lot is happening around licenses. Licenses are kind of going mobile in many states. Uh, depends on the state you live in. Depends on if the state has signed up or made this partnership with uh, a couple of different companies that are providing these mobile licenses. But it's really that simple. We're going to have licenses that live on our phones, and we will no longer have to carry around the cards, I predict, within five years' time. 
we will all have this. Really? So I went to Delaware to go check out what's going on with their pilot program. And um, this year, they're going to go. They're going to shift to this mobile driver's license program. You'll still get the cards. You'll still need the cards to initiate the mobile process and create your mobile driver's license. But this year, by the end of the calendar year, their uh, secretary of um, transportation told me she plans to move the whole state to this or open this up to people who want to participate. The same company that's working with them, they said by the end of this year, 10 states will either have pilot programs or will be launching to their citizens. That's very exciting. That's amazing because every time that we've talked about a digital national ID, people flip out and they're like, there's no way you're putting a barcode on me. But (laughs) yeah. And so I don't actually, I haven't gotten into the details of how they want. I mean, this is really just a one-to-one conversion. The, The license on your phone or the license in your pocket will become available in a way on your device. And it really looks exactly the same. Like, And it also tracks your location at all times? They're saying no, Christopher. I asked many times in many ways, and they said no. Okay. All right. I like it. It doesn't matter. Exciting. Police so, have access to that anyway. They All they need is a warrant. FYI. <laughs> Thanks, Mims. So this week you learned a lot about licenses, but not really how to spell license, if, if we're being honest with each other. I spelled you it wrong? You learned one way to spell license. No, you spelled it right. And then I was trying to say driver's licenses, but apparently it's just driver license, our editor has told me. So the whole Driver thing- license? Yes. Is the plural what? No, not the plural. Just singular is not driver's license, which I have always said, but it's mm. driver license. Mm-hmm. So the plural is like attorneys general. It's driver's license. Also, it's teeth paste. We all agreed on that. <laughs> Fighting. <laughs> Next up, the surprisingly digital future of the paper notebook, or maybe the paper future of the digital notebook. I don't know. One of those. We'll get to all of it. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X, and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com slash consulting. IBM. Let's create. So, confession time. I have kind of a thing for notebooks, which doesn't really make sense because I spend all of my time typing, but I love a good paper notebook and nice pen. And there's just something wonderful about writing the long way. Uh, Moleskin, the company, of course, knows all about this. The Italian company has been one of the best notebook makers for more than two decades. And its notebooks are just iconic at this point. It's like the Kleenex of notebooks. But recently, Moleskin's been doing some weird stuff for a company that works in paper. It's been making apps. It has to-do list apps and calendar apps and apps that kind of look like a Moleskin, but are actually on your iPad instead of on paper. And through it all, Moleskin seems to be trying to figure out how digital and analog can interact. It has a paper notebook that syncs to your phone and a smart pen that records everything you write and all kinds of different stuff. I really like the idea that the future isn't just digital or just analog, but exists somewhere in the middle. But what does that middle look like? Uh, To talk about that, I talked with Peter Jensen, the head of digital at Moleskine, and we talked about all of that stuff. But first, I wanted to know what happens when you show up at a company like Moleskine, your first day, It's this company famous for this high-touch, beautiful, analog kind of product, loved by people who don't want to look at screens all day. And you start trying to convince them 
to do stuff on screens. I came from a very analog company, Lego. Mm -hmm. So I was kind of used to this idea of people feeling threatened a little bit. So the first thing I did was have a presentation and talk a lot about my love for the physical <laughs> objects, which is not a lie. Right, I actually sure. really appreciate that. Appreciate that. And try to sort of tell them that I was not there to try to kill the notebook or, or anything like that. It was just, you know, there was a digital side to that. This is six years ago? This Something is like uh, that? seven years ago. This seven is years 2012. Ago. Okay. So, like, what, what was your sense? You show up to Moleskine and you're like, okay, I have to figure out how paper notebooks and the internet yeah. mix. Like, yeah. what, what did you have in mind? I just really uh, enjoyed both worlds. For me, uh, I was a, a, a user of Moleskine products before I joined the company, and I was a user of uh, services like Evernote or digital tools, obviously. Mm -hmm. And uh, it just seemed like that would be kind of nifty or practical to be able to combine those two without too much effort. And uh, so I didn't really, I didn't see that as, as, a, as a problem. The other thing was there was this narrative going on um, that we were at war, like, you know, Evernote wanted to be the paperless yep. company and all of this. And, and uh, that whole thing reminded me a lot about uh, the, the, the discussions about analog or physical toys and digital toys mm. that I'd just been through for a number of years, where really we realized that, you know, kids play both worlds. They just, it's a story that goes between those two. So right. very quickly, I, I you know, copy-pasted that idea <laughs> into uh, Moleskine, and the strategy is is pretty close to what we we did, uh, you know, before. And it kind of just it kind of worked, but but really attributes, you know, can be attributed to the fact that the the first project was a commercial success as well. And that was the Evernote. Yeah, notebook, that was the Evernote, right. Yeah. Okay. And it was so fascinating because I remember. I mean, I've been talking to companies for years who anybody who does any kind of note taking or productivity app of any kind, you ask them what they want. And the goal every single time is paper. Yeah. Every Like literally 100% of the time, it's like, oh, what's the plan here? And they're like, well, paper. Yes. It's like as, as flexible, it can be anything you want. It's reusable. It's, you know, the battery lasts forever, whatever. That's what Amazon's trying to do with the Kindle. Mm -hmm. It's what Evernote was trying to do, all these things. And I feel like you made this very funny sort of statement with that, where it's like, no, the paper's fine. <laughs> like paper as a technology is, is quite good, it yeah. turns out. And we don't need to mess with it. No. But the question is then, how do you make it so that what's great about paper mixes with what's great about digital? Yes. And the system that you developed with Evernote is still kind of at sort of a rough outline, the same way you think about the notebooks now. Can you explain how they how they work, like yeah. what a smart notebook is? A smart notebook is really a, a, a normal notebook, but not totally normal with some sort of a pattern on the page, which can trigger certain types of functionality. In the case of Evernote, it had a, a pattern which improved the quality of the OCR, uh, so uh, character recognition, mm -hmm. if you like, and which would enable you to be able to, you, you could, you know, search your notes once the note was captured by your phone. Which seems uh, like the primary thing. Like when I talk to people who use paper notebooks, it's like, I just wish I could search. Yes. That's the, that's the thing. Exactly. Okay. So that was the sort of the, the use case was, I have, a, you know, 192 pages of notebook. <laughs> right. How do I find that particular page? So that was the use case. We then decided, well, you know, in, in many cases, that's a little bit of sort of a closed system. Right, you can find your note, but then what? Mm. You couldn't really export it out of Evernote. It was, you know, you just still had a graphical representation of your handwritten note. 
So the next projects we started working on, that was the, in the partnership with Adobe, was this idea, well, how do we you know, reduce the, the, the bridge or, or the amount of effort you have to do to go from paper to screen? Mm. So opening up, if you like, the, the metaphorically speaking, opening up the page and being able to lift the content off the page and put it into an online or a digital tool and just continue working. And, and in Adobe's case, that was particularly about drawings and things, right? Instead drawing. of drawing on a computer or with the Wacom tablet or whatever, you just draw in a notebook and then exactly. throw it into whatever Adobe yeah. app you want. Exactly. You could pull it into Illustrator and just basically start editing your drawing right away. And I think that's really, you know, where where this this concept of smart starts to come in, in the sense that that allows you to start, you know, creating workflows, personalized workflows, and really help you. Because ultimately, I think the smart notebook, I mean, a notebook in itself is very smart. Yeah, the, right. the, the smart part would be if the application or service understands who you are and what you're doing and can help you in doing mm-hmm. that. But I think what, what we're seeing, certainly with the camera-based technology, I think a lot of the investments that are going into facial recognition, uh, video analysis, and all of this has certainly changed the quality of the service. So if I mm. look at where we were uh, with Evernote in 2012 and where we are now, the quality is going up rapidly. Handwrite, the recognition of handwriting is improving monthly. Because so, that seems like the most sort of straightforwardly useful thing for most people. If I can write a page, if I can write a page in my notebook, take a picture of it, and have it pull all the text out yes. accurately and dump it into wherever I want it to go, that seems like no. everybody wants that. No, exactly. And How it, good is that now? I would say it's probably around statistically seventy-five percent. Now, that's pretty good. Uh, of course, that means you. That's you definitely a, better than it was a few years no, ago. No, exactly. <laughs> yeah. If you take the pen, you're above 85, so okay. there's still some room to grow. Uh, but it, that's uh, an amazing development, which means that the Evernote solution was only used for search, mm. right? recognizing words. Right. Now you have to recognize the individual letter and turn it into something uh, usable or that you can use. It seems like there are a few pieces of the tech that are still in progress. I'm curious which you think is going to get better. So in the world I want to live in, Mm -hmm. I can use any pen I want. I can use any notebook I want. And it just sort of magically figures out what's going on Mm -hmm. and and makes it better. There's AI in there. There's paper in there. There's image recognition in there. There's all kinds of different stuff. So like, is that, am I going to get that future? Will, Will every notebook be smart because the cloud is so smart or because you get good at this? Yes. Yeah? Yes. Good. I, I think that the, the thing you're not mentioning, which I think is really important, is is syntax. Mm. So uh, for the uh, application to know what type of content you're making and as a consequence trigger certain procedural rules will be super important. Do you have any sense of how far we off from, or how far off we are from sort of being able to confidently I, do I, that? Kind I, of stuff? I would say with the speed that we're seeing now, I would expect this to happen within three years. Uh, and the and the reason uh, for that is simply the the quality increase I've seen in uh, in OCR and image recognition is staggering, and and simply because the big players are, are driving at it now, you know the next thing would be how do you humanize that? How do you make that valuable to mm-hmm. the individual, uh, and and not make it seem like. You know, we now know everything. Right. Well, you want to get to the point, right, where you you can 
sort of know everything I want you to know without me feeling like you're reading my diary. Yeah. Which is a tricky balance, yes. I would think. Absolutely. But, but I guess, I mean, I, one thing I was going to ask you is, do you ever, will you ever ship a notebook that is just basically like a bunch of tiny, beautiful little screens that you just write on and it all sort of magically appears? But the more you talk, the less I think that's actually a good idea. Yes. I, so like, I, I, I'd rather have it be paper and then I can figure out what to do with it later. I, I am a big fan of, let's let's call it self-curation, mm. right? I think that's a really important thing. Um, we don't want to be, you know, the, uh, let's say, the, the Pinterest of handwritten drawings where people just share everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and our audience, uh, from what we gather, are not interested in in a sort of very social media uh, approach to being recognized for their contribution. I think they're more interested in in their personal development. Mm. And going after that, it it just means that the services or offerings that we will make will be targeted more towards that. So, okay, so then let's talk about apps Mm. because the other thing that's happening, Mm. sort of this the like parallel fight to how to make analog a little smarter is... I guess if I'm boiling it all the way down, basically how to make screens more pleasant to write on, yeah. uh, which seems like it's getting better. I mean, you look at the the Apple Pencil and the Surface stuff is getting good and yeah. Google has one. And this idea of using a pen to write on a screen yeah. seems to be real. Yes. Uh, is that is – will someday that just be the thing for lots of people? Like is that – is that I mean, we've sort of officially said we want to be agnostic. Fair. So smart pen, notebook, and glass. So you don't care screen. which one wins? No. Okay. Not really. I, I think uh, we're in, uh, in, the, in the business of uh, letting humans contribute to um, you know, humanity mm-hmm. through being creative and, and happy. And whether that happens on paper or glass doesn't matter. I think... We've found with uh, the latest app we've developed, Flow, that there are simply there are some limitations uh, to this still. Whether it's the texture of the glass, the density of the tip of your pen, mm. there are many many things, and lots of companies are investing enormous amount of money on making sure that you have friction in the <laughs> <Right>. glass surface. <laughs> So drag is drag. the word. I hear the word drag like twenty times a day. Exactly, and I would say some of them are getting really close. I, you know, I enjoy using the Apple Pencil. Uh, besides the AI question, the one when Apple Pencil came out, everyone is saying, "Oh no, is it gonna, you know, uh, hurt you?" And I said, "No, I, I think it's really great because we never saw the screen as a threat to us. Mm. What we saw as a threat was actually handwriting, Interesting. potentially going away." So the fact that you now have a major platform like the iPad or the Chromebook or or the Surface introducing a pen is actually really good news for us because that actually, I think, uh, helps us with a bigger problem, which was potentially moving away from handwriting. Right. So was the goal with Flow basically to just sort of as faithfully as possible do a moleskin on a screen? Uh, no, I, I think uh, the, the goal with Flow was to let people become, uh, you know, get to their uh, creative process as quickly as absolutely possible. Okay, yeah, and but that's, that's like where a very flowery answer. Like what the, when you think about like I, what a notebook is supposed to be on a no, screen, like what was your sense of what that is? Really, just wanted to remove any friction 
between you and the screen. So the uh, the process of selecting a tool and configuring a tool all the time, mm -hmm. we took away. Interesting. Okay. The, the process of uh, figuring out, you know, opening a folder, finding a document, or opening another application and where to put it, all of that, that whole thing, we just wanted to take that away. Right. So it's, it is... It's completely aligned from a values point of view and a simplicity point of view. Mm -hmm. But we, on a design level, we really wanted to move away from this very sort of skeuomorphic idea of turning the page, right. <laughs> uh, which we've done apps that, sure. that did that, uh, but really just allow people to get into it as quickly as possible and, and use as little mental capacity as possible. When I talk about it, I always feel kind of, funny in the sense that I'm sitting here and saying, this is a great app and you should get it. And really, there's, it's, there's almost nothing in it and it does two <laughs> things. Right. But actually, that's the key, right? right? Uh, and, and it's back to, it's, and that's actually kind of back to analog, mm. if you like, from a metaphor point of view that you start tapping into things that people you know, recognize and understand and can and thus see the value in faster. So, and it, it seems like, I mean, there's this interesting sort of tension, I feel like, between wanting to take all of the digital tools that are available. Mm. And it, it feels like, I mean, obviously the whole appeal of doing something digitally is that you can do more stuff. Yes. <laughs> so you can just do more than you can with a notebook. Yeah. Uh, but that at some point along the way, it seems like you think you you would lose, whether it's like the moleskin magic or just kind of the whole point of doing it this way in the first place. Like, do you have a sense of what that line is before you, like, giving people stuff to do versus making it too much stuff? I, yes, there is a point. Um, we we sort of talk about it laughingly, like this f fourth world issue okay. that we start having in the sense that eventually we will all have, uh, you know, 10 cloud services full of documents and information that is way beyond what we can possibly ever comprehend. That's my life right now. Yeah, that sounds right. Okay. <laughs> so we're already there. Great. Um, and I think as a, as a content uh, creation platform, you contribute to that. Uh, and, and I think that's where, uh, you know, something like AI will become important mm. in the sense of how does that become your assistant, not the enterprise assistant. Right. Uh, we talk about uh, this idea of putting the re back in search. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, the, okay. I'm the father of teenagers. Mm -hmm. They think uh, the world re is from a search box to a single result. Right. And there's this whole, you know, conversation about the serendipity of the unknown. Um, how do you uh, stumble across, across things and make connections that are not uh, A to B? And I'm, I'm very, uh, we are very cautious about the content that we create, how can you ultimately create a, a system or platform where you're able to uh, reaccess knowledge that you yourself have created before? Hmm. Because I think that's, besides being able to search my notebook, if you, if you think about it in a broader context, how am I able to understand if this is a thought that I've had before? 
what I've you know uh, what I've thought about it before and how could I, if you like, time travel between uh, instances of my own thought process. And I think that's where uh, it becomes really valuable to to have tools uh, like AI to help you. But that also means the algorithm running that needs to know you quite well. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think the motivation for you to uh, make that trade-off is that, A, you trust the provider of, of that, but also that the the um, the value that you get is immediate. So I, I think that really the the uh, the research part c- could be a trigger for us to legitimize why digital instances of your physical notebooks are a good idea over time. Mm. Right? We a lot of the things we've talked about is you know, as part of a workflow. So I have an idea, I want to finish it and give it to someone else to manufacture. Sure. Here it's it's more going backwards, right? So how do you, how do you actually go through time? And I think that's really uh, important, uh, particularly with the, with the next generation of figuring out how do they access the past. I think that's more important than anything. And, and that's why being able to take your idea or thought from your notebook when you want and put it into something greater, I think is, is the best, most noble cause uh, we could have. The Moleskin Flow app, by the way, for the iPad is one of my favorites. Highly recommend it. Anyway, that's our show for the week. Thanks to Peter, Katie, Christopher, and Joanna for being here. Thanks to Tanya, our producer, and Wilson, our editor. And most of all, thank you for listening. We have new episodes on Fridays, so make sure you subscribe to Instant Message anywhere you get your podcasts. Uh, As always, if you have feedback or ideas, email us at instantmessage at wsj.com. We'll talk to you soon.